You're listening to The Worship Review, a podcast which evaluates contemporary Christian music for the good of the church to the glory of God. This podcast is for the whole church to encourage thoughtful engagement with the words, emotions, and ideas in our music. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. Greetings once again and welcome back to The Worship Review, your favorite Christian music podcast. My name is Tyler a linguist, a former worship leader, and an all-around good guy, and I'm joined by Colin. <laughs> I am Colin. I'm a history professor and a former worship leader as well. And before we jump into the song today, uh, I'd like to apologize for the audio quality. I assure you the fault is entirely my own, and uh, we are not using our t- typical setup, so things might not sound as clean as they usually do. Um In the second series of the Worship Review, we have looked at traditional hymns of the church that have been redone in recent decades by contemporary-ish worship artists. So sometimes these are the big bands like Hillsong and Passion. Sometimes they've been sort of the old-school Christian gospel movement like the Gaithers. And today we're looking at, I guess we would classify it as a big hit band, Uh, Chris Tomlin redid a hymn called uh, How Marvelous, or I Stand Amazed. Uh, The hymn was written by Charles H. Gabriel, a prolific American hymnodist. So he wrote thousands of hymns. He was originally born in Iowa, and surprise, surprise, being from Iowa, he was raised on a farm. He would... (laughs) (laughs) Did he have a baseball field in his uh, backyard? (laughs) Yes, he had a he had a baseball field, and there was an American flag waving right. uh, somewhere. Yeah, and, the, and the ghosts came out and played in the baseball field. This is a reference. You're, to, you're uh, too young. You're too young, Tyler. I'm sorry. Field of Dreams. I'm so Kevin sorry. Costner. Forgive me. Have you me. not seen this film? I've not. Oh, Tyler, we're gonna have to fix that. Okay, we'll fix it. Don't worry. So he's from Iowa. Um, we don't actually know how many hymns Charles Gabriel wrote. And the reason for this is because he was so fond of writing under pseudonyms and not telling people what his pseudonyms were that there are several hymns that might fit his style, but they are not directly attributed to him. Tomlin redid this in uh, recent years, and um, Colin, why don't we take a look at the text of this song? In the prayer of Jesus the Nazareth And wonder how he of me A sinner condemned I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. So first of all, we've got somebody standing, and they're amazed, and they're in the presence, which sounds self-explanatory, but not necessarily. It's fascinating, for example, that a person would stand in the presence of Jesus, that that's, uh, you know, while Jesus was here on the earth, of course, it was normal to stand in his presence, but we don't necessarily know sort of when and in what context this presence is taking place. And it's odd because you have this construction of Jesus the Nazarene, 
as well. So there's all. <laughs> I don't, okay, so we know that standing in the presence of God is something that does happen in Scripture. The Levites, for example, would stand in the presence of God. We see this in a reference like Second Chronicles chapter twenty nine, verse eleven. Uh, we also see in Revelation, though, uh, a great multitude from every nation and all tribes and all people standing before the throne and before the Lamb, which is, of course, Jesus Christ. That's Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. So, we see Christians standing before Jesus, and we see the Levites standing in the presence of God in the nation of Israel. So, and of course, we would have had the disciples standing and walking and interacting and eating with Jesus as well. So, Jesus is present in some way in the song, but we don't know exactly how. I also thought of Revelation and thought, either this statement is figurative, so I am in the presence of Jesus figuratively, um, or it's describing a future event, if we take it to mean the bodily presence. So, if it's describing um, the new heavens and the new earth, then yeah, I will physically be there. But if it's um, if it's not about the bodily presence necessarily, then I think we could say it now with good conscience. So, um, where two or more are gathered in my name, Christ says, there I am also. Uh, we have the Holy Spirit indwelling mm-hmm. us. Um, we are, when we gather corporately, the bride of Christ. And in that sense, we, we do have his spiritual presence Um and we may, you know, physically stand in that uh, presence. But again, when you say stand in the presence, it's almost always meant to be a literal presence. It's not like, oh, I stood in the presence of the president today. And, and someone says, well, did you talk to him? Oh, no, he was he was in the you know building or he was in the city that yeah. I was in. So I was, you know, figuratively in his presence. It usually means you were literally kind of face-to-face yes. with someone. Yeah, so it's it's kind of a funny... That's why it just perplexes me a little bit, because typically we use that term to mean... I mean, the physical presence is, uh, is redundant, right? Because presence implies physical presence. But in this case, I don't quite see how that's possible. Like, the author of this song did not stand in the physical presence of Jesus. So it must mean something spiritual, now we have of Jesus the Nazarene, which is not a common way that hymns or worship songs in general describe Jesus. It's an odd characterization of Jesus. Um, we have a reference in Matthew chapter 2, verse 23, saying that Jesus had fulfilled a prophecy that the Messiah would be called a Nazarene, but this is a prophecy that actually doesn't appear in the Old Testament canon. So, maybe it was an oral tradition, and a prophecy that just wasn't contained in, in the written word. Uh, it's, it's a mystery of some kind, and, and Matthew does clearly associate the title Nazarene with Nazareth as well, um, as do some early church fathers. So, this person is is focusing on the fact that they do not deserve the love that is being given to them. And they identify themselves as a sinner, yeah, condemned, so there's kind of courtroom language, um, mm-hmm. and unclean. So, in a 
that's almost the language of a sacrificial priesthood or something like that where yeah kind of this the, the ceremonial law exactly so we have a sinner so one who does wrong one who is condemned um and also one who has um sullied him or herself sure beats a lot of that language in modern worship songs just about being in the darkness or you know, being alone or being frightened, right? Like this really outlines the problem that this person has there. I mean, it's just completely unambiguous. I have to ask though, is this person already a Christian? Because uh, if they are a Christian, then at least uh, one of these words doesn't apply to them anymore, right? Being condemned. Uh, we are no longer condemned, and Scripture makes that very, very clear. Yeah, so Colin, I think you're thinking of Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Yeah. Yeah, so in which case, this wouldn't be quite accurate. Like, there, it's, there's a healthy amount of recognizing our sinfulness as Christians, but we should never wander... We should, <laughs> I was using wander, W-A-N-D-E-R. I wonder as I wander. <laughs> we should never walk backwards into our pre-Christian state. We should never, right, we, we should never doubt the efficacy of God's salvation such that we're condemned. Like, and if we ever are worried about being condemned, that is not coming from God. That's not something that comes from Scripture. God is very, very clear in Scripture that um, Christ is the author and finisher of our faith, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, as you've referenced. It wouldn't be really right for a Christian to sing that they are condemned. Mm-hmm. I think Christ makes this rather clear in Luke 18, um, where he's telling a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Um, so Luke 18, 9 to 14, I'll read from it. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And then here begins a quote. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then that ends the quote. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And so Christ here is giving a very good example of how we can humble ourselves in contrition over our sinfulness without straying into um, saying things that aren't true. Because the tax collector, he simply says, beating his breast, he wouldn't lift his eyes up, God be merciful to me, a sinner. So he declares that he is a sinner and that he needs God's mercy. And that is sufficient. I think if he had you know, said... Um, you are not capable of saving me because I am so wicked. Well, then he would clearly be far out of the bounds of what is um, healthy contrition and erring into some very dangerous things to say about and to God, I think. Mm-hmm. Yep. Then we come to the refrain. Sing. 
marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Uh, okay, so just maybe actually you can answer a question for me, Tyler, because just in terms of the grammar, how marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be, shall ever be what? Like, I mean, is it just saying my song will be forever? No, I don't think so. Although that's a that's a good point. Um, so if you say shall ever be, you can you can imply that something will last into perpetuity. So. Okay. Um, this this tower shall ever stand, or something like that. But I think okay. Now, technically, I mean, our song of praise to God in heaven will ever be, in that we will not cease to praise Him in heaven ever. Um, but I think what is meant here is my is song. Is it that the song? The song is marvelous and wonderful. No, 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 no. Just just <laughs> the song itself um, shall be the following words. Oh, how marvelous, or just how marvelous, how wonderful okay. is my Savior's love for me. So, uh, my praise forever is going to be the Savior's love with respect to its marvelousness and its wonder. All right, that helps clear that up. I, but it's, again, there's it's a problem, too, because it opens with how marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. So, that's... That, that and introduces a new clause, right? So then yeah. you have to ask yourself, is that first how marvelous, how wonderful, modifying um, the Savior's love later on? Or is it a reflection um, in and of itself before we move to defining the song? I, yeah, I don't really know. I mean, when I sing this song, I just never thought about this. I just thought, yeah, marvelous, wonderful. God, you know, Yippee! my Savior's love for me is marvelous and wonderful. I never really thought about what the and my song shall ever be meant. I just had no idea. I think it has to be the song of praise in heaven. Uh, okay. The last thing I'll say about the, the just the words themselves before we talk about some of the content maybe um, is that this how wonderful may be a play on words. The OED, the Oxford English Dictionary, lists the last date for wonder to be used in the sense miracle as 1846. So, half a century or half a century before this was written. And so, um, now, the word wonder is a very generic word, really. It just means kind of amazement or um, the state of being astounded. Um, but in in older forms of English, it meant a miracle, uh, quite simply a miracle. So yeah, a wonder. A wonder. A, you know, the phrase signs and wonders uh, mm -hmm. is meant to point to kind of miraculous powers. And so I wonder if, <laughs> excuse the... Uh, the the, bir the birds that you're hearing uh, are, Tyler is in the state of right now, uh, enjoying the sunshine, unfortunately for the rest of us who are not there. Um, I have no comment on what Colin said, and I can neither confirm nor deny my location because it's no one's business um, where I am or when I am there. Uh, <laughs> so, I'm, I am very sorry for the birds. <laughs> how terrible. How obnoxious. <laughs> and their song shall ever be. So, 
Um, when it says how wonderful, it could be that uh, the the author is reflecting on the fact that this, the fact that he now has um, a sure love of the Savior for him, uh, is in its in and of itself a miracle. It's a possibility, but um, that's just the kind of language side of things. Colin, what do you have to say about the ideas housed in these words? Yeah, I think they're very nice ideas. It's true that the Savior's love is marvelous, and it is a wonder. It's a miraculous thing. And if we take, obviously, we have to excuse the author for saying that he was a sinner condemned. But if we just take the fact of where we were prior to conversion, and then the love that we receive from our Savior, that truly is a miraculous thing in the sense that it is beyond nature for this to happen. It's occurred in a supernatural way. It's beyond the capabilities of human beings to probably even fully understand love like this, let alone love in such a way. And made his very own. He bore the burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. He took my sins and my sorrows. He made them his very own. He bore the burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. Okay, so this one I find a little bit curious. So, he did take our sin. We see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The question I have is the, uh, about the second half of this. He bore the burden, so the sin, to Calvary and suffered and died alone so no colin not again i don't want to get into this again <laughs> yeah we don't have to get into the whole penal substitutionary atonement thing but yes i mean so he wasn't physically alone that's for sure like there were people there it is true that the disciples abandoned him and scripture tells us this explicitly in matthew twenty six fifty six, and i imagine that that's what this means all his disciples deserted him and fled. Um, but, you know, he wasn't... And again, we don't have to go into the whole thing. Folks can listen to our review of how deep the Father's love for us to get a lengthy discussion of penal substitutionary atonement and the extent to which on how far we can take that idea. You know, so so God was with him as well, although God's wrath was upon him. So, he's not just suffering physically, he's suffering the wrath of God as well. There's another way alone could be meant here, which maybe is he suffered and died alone in that nobody else suffered and died. So, nobody else did anything. He was not aided. He alone died. No one else did. Something like that. Like, okay, there were other, there were two criminals that died on crosses next to him, but obviously only his suffering and death actually bore the burden 
So I don't know. There's a few different ways you can take this. Some of them would be justified in using the term alone. Some of them wouldn't. I don't know if you have any thoughts about how to sort this out. I have no doubt in my mind that he experienced a kind of social isolation that we couldn't imagine from these people, these very same people. Yeah, and his followers and his disciples. I mean, they they completely left him. Yeah. You know? And he seems to be concerned about that even before he goes to the cross where he's in the garden, where he's he just wants them to stay up and watch and pray, and they can't even do it. Mm-hmm. You know. Did you ever see the original verse of this that was cut out that mentions the Garden of Gethsemane? Yeah, I was going to talk about that at the end, but we can talk about that now. Yeah, just talk about it now. It's relevant. So, yeah, so there's an omitted verse. For me, it was in the garden. He prayed not my will, but I. For me it was in the garden, he prayed not my will but thine, he had no tears for his own griefs, but sweat drops of blood for mine. Uh, So yeah, there is a verse about him being in the garden and, you know, just being in agony which is what Luke 22, verse 14, 44, Luke 22, verse 44 says, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. So the, the slight difference there in scripture, scripture makes it clear that he didn't actually sweat blood, right? They, the, it's a simile, the, the, the word like is being used here. So that means it was like blood, but it wasn't blood. It's just sort of comparing it to blood. And it could very well mean his sweat became like drops of blood in the respect that it contained blood. Um, and Colin, I know you, you, you probably know this, our listeners probably too, but um, there is a condition where people who are experiencing extreme uh, psychological um, anxiety um, will have the uh, capillaries in their blood vessels, the blood vessels that feed the sweat glands um, will burst um, under the agony, the mental agony, and they will bleed through their sweat glands. So they will literally sweat blood. Um, and I Tyler, I actually, I actually did not know that. Oh, really? No, yes. that's shocking to me. Okay. Wow. <laughs> so it is possible that... Under the most immense mental agony that a human ever experienced, that Christ also experienced this extremely rare um, illness that is uh, brought on by mental agony. Uh, but, you know, we don't know that. We just have, you know, three words from Luke in Greek that are kind of ambiguous. So, yeah, I don't know. I think we can know it because Luke doesn't say that he sweat drops of blood, says that his sweat was like. <laughs> Yes, drops of blood. I, I agree, but my point is, it doesn't say in what respect it was like a drop of blood. If that makes sense, like maybe Luke. I mean, yep. Luke was a physician. Maybe he was saying the blood is pouring out with his sweat through his sweat glands, so his sweat is coming out like drops of blood, even though it's still sweat. This verse also is grammar is a little bit weird. If you're just reading this verse in isolation, there are only two possible 
subjects and objects in here. One is Jesus, and one is the worshiper. So for me, it was in the garden. He prayed, not my will, but thine. Now, thine, the only other, the only other subject that's been referenced is me. So now we know from Scripture that he's talking about God. He's saying, not my will, but yours be done, God, God the Father. Um, but in this stanza, God, and in fact, in the whole song, God the Father does not appear. Hmm. I mean, if you were being really pedantic about this, you, you it would almost sound like Jesus is saying, not my will, but you, your will, the worshiper. Yeah, sure. That's actually not, how I read it the first time. But, I mean, obviously, not my will, but yours, or not my will, but thine, um, is sort of a cultural meme at this point. Everyone, every yeah. Christian knows these words and right. knows what they Not come my from. will, but yours be done. So yeah. we, we all know this. So we know that this, exactly, because it's a, yeah, because it's a meme, because it's a pretty famous thing that Jesus says, we know that he's referring to God. Um, but it's just interesting that not only in this verse, but in the whole song, we don't actually have God the Father shows up, show up. Yeah, sure. Um, I think um, what's meant here, especially with the bearing of the burden, is perhaps a reference to uh, Isaiah 53, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, because yeah. um, we have griefs, uh, or we at least have sorrows and then the bearing of a burden. Um, but I don't think, did he make our sins his very own sins? I mean, the passage that you read from 2 Corinthians 5 was that God the Father made him to be sin who knew no sin. He made Christ himself um, to become sin uh, for our yeah. sake. Um, he did not make our sins the sins of Christ, except in the sense that he, he uh, is the atoning sacrifice and our representative there. Is that, is that splitting hairs, Colin? Uh, probably some people would say it's not splitting hairs. These distinctions are meaningful and important. I, I don't know if this song gives us enough to actually criticize it in this way, I guess, is all I'm saying. Okay. I, don't know, I think there's good enough warrant here to just say the author's clearly intending something like Second Corinthians 5.21 and probably not trying to say that Jesus had sin. I, I don't think this is making a statement about the sinlessness of Christ. I don't think so. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, the, uh, the last comment I have is that um, he did, if whatever, the, do you think the burden that he bore to Calvary, do you think that is the burden of our griefs and sorrows and our sins? Or do you think that's the cross? Well, ac according to this song, the burden seems to be referencing, well, okay. He doesn't say that burden. So we don't know what the burden is, but you would think based on the two lines prior to this that the burden is the burden of sins and sorrow. Yeah, my sins and sorrows. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. I, I remembered reading that and thinking, well, he, he actually couldn't. The, the burden of the cross was too great for his body at that point that he had been tortured for so long. Yeah. Um, okay. Let's talk about then the final verse.
will be mature through the ancient to sing of his When, with the ransomed in glory, his face I at last shall see, twill be my joy through the ages to sing of his love for me. Always nice to get twill in a twill. hymn. Pretty cool. Twill. Uh, I love words that so, begin with twa. So this is where I go back to that passage I quoted earlier from Revelation 7, 9 through 10, where we have the great multitude there standing before the throne, before Christ. They're clothed in white. And they're crying out with a loud voice. Verse 10 tells us, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So the author is looking forward now to being in the presence of Jesus. So it's a kind of full circle. We start with, I stand amazed in the presence. And we're not exactly sure what that means, but it's it must be some kind of spiritual presence. And it's not this presence and revelation or in glory because he talks about it now as something that will happen later. So so we have we have a clear so he's talking about being in the presence of Christ again here without actually saying I stand amazed in the presence but that's what's happening again too. Yes. Because a lot of these revivalist songs tend to be highly individualistic and this song is now referencing a ransomed, a, a, a multitude of some kind. And then it goes back to this individualistic part, right? His face I at last shall see, and it's his joy, and he sings of Christ's love for me. So, he, so the collective body of the redeemed is there, but he's, the singer is very much focused on the individual relationship, the individual experience of Christ's presence that brings him joy forever. And not only, well, I guess the joy also is that he gets to sing. That's the, that's the joy too, is that he gets to keep on singing, which, you know, I guess ties back into the refrain that, um, oh, maybe it, the it song certainly is, ties back into the refrain. You can is, already hear it leading into it at the end of this verse. Yes. Right, right, right. But but the, but we were talking earlier with the refrain about, you know, is the song also marvelous and wonderful? Yeah. And this verse would suggest that this person is getting joy to sing. I found it funny that he, it opens with, I stand amazed in the presence. And the last verse has... When I at last shall see his face, as if we haven't seen his face yet. It's almost as if we stood in his presence, but we couldn't see his face before. And then yeah. now at the end, we, we stand in his presence again. Um, and this time we do get to see his face. Colin, um, do you have any cl- concluding remarks about this song? We've already talked about the omitted verse. I don't know that the omitted verse adds a lot to the song. Uh, so I don't mind that Tomlin took it out. It's, it's, it's a nice verse, but it doesn't necessarily have to be there. I do think the song is a little bit odd at times and slightly confusing at times, not in any way that leads to error, apart from 
the issue of being condemned. That's too strong of a word to use. So apart from that, and just, you know, some of the working out some of the grammar and stuff, uh, I think on the whole, uh, this is a pretty clear song. I realize that I have sung it without fully comprehending what it was saying and not necessarily noticing some of these slight incoherencies. That's not a word. Without noticing some of these slight... Uh, Tyler, what, what word am I looking for? I like incoherencies. Okay. I think we'll that is a that. word. Okay. You can nominalize any anything with a Y. Well, that's, that's because I'm an, an American, and Americans are allowed to completely make up words. This was a source of some commentary when I lived in the United Kingdom that... How dare they, excuse me, but how dare they come up with the English language and then criticize any other place for being innovative with their speech? The English language is one of the least linguistically conservative languages, at least in the Germanic language family. I, I, that is shocking to me to hear English people talk about how Americans just love inventing things. Like, Well, it's <laughs> hard when, you know... The Americans are better than them at so many things. They do have to find something. So are they talking about how we can just make a verb out of anything? Like you can just take yeah, a, a we noun can, yeah. and just say like, oh yeah, he, yeah, um, he, chair it right now. And that means like to sit down in a chair or, or we could take a verb and make a noun out of it too. So like we can make it, we can make an appliance called a toaster because it toasts things. And then we, we, we can name the little slice of bread as it comes out. A slice of toast, and then it, that yeah. be, that becomes a noun in English and at least in German and many other languages because of this appliance. Okay, sorry, I just <laughs> I, maybe there's something like, like I have a chip on my shoulder or something about the English. Maybe this has been uh, introspection with Tyler for <laughs> linguistic <laughs> introspections and musings. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I don't know. What do you think, Tyler? Uh, uh, th- there are a few things in this hymn that are worded well there's one thing that's worded poorly and then a few things that are just worded ambiguously none of them are an issue if you take the time to think it through and explain to yourself and perhaps to others um what's being said so i think on the whole it's it's fine would you endorse it well, okay, so this is this is not an entirely easy question because you know, we have we have chucked some songs to the not endorse curb because of one word. And you know, that condemned word does stick in my craw a little bit. You know, Christians come with all sort of all sorts of tendencies. And I'll admit that my tendency is probably more toward Phariseeism. I'm way more tempted to to fall into error through things like work righteousness and behavior. You know, so I bristle at a word like reckless to describe the love of God. And that to me is just, oh, you, how could you do that? But like condemned, I probably should be equally upset hmm. about a song calling a Christian condemned, because that is just fundamentally not true. It is fundamentally against Scripture. It is clearly against Romans 8, verse 1. 
I'm I'm more likely to just be aware of my sin and to and to kind of and to and to experience just kind of low grade guilt over my sinfulness. And so maybe all this is just to say I lean towards endorsing the song, but just as I think about it, as we've gone through this, that idea of calling a Christian condemned is is really problematic. I don't know if I could endorse singing it in a church with that line in it. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I could. Yeah, I mean, not only are you not condemned, you're a new creation in Christ. Yeah. This, mm. We're victors. We're, nothing can separate us from the love of God. I mean, we were condemned. And if I guess if, if that's the way that, okay, so, okay, here's a way for me maybe to get around, <laughs> me to get around this. Uh, you don't need to get around it. I think well, you're right. I, okay. I think I, I already mean, have an objection lined up for the way you're going to get around it because... Okay, well, the, here's the way that I would get around this. We'll see if your objection is is okay. Um, you could make the argument that this person is really speaking in the past tense in the first verse and is just not using the past tense because we do have condemned, like it's not the past perfect, you know, it's not the perfect tense in that it's fully in the past, I guess, like that could be the imperfect past tense. But, but you know, maybe that's what is meant here, that I, you know, I was condemned, and it just doesn't say it very cleanly. So, you know, if, if that's the way that I could view this, I could say, okay, well, he, this, this, this guy did not communicate this well, and the way that it, the way that it, came out is not endorsable but if this guy means i was condemned then it's fine but it's just then it's just unclear then it's just like bad i don't know this is poor language right maybe it's iowa english i don't know um <laughs> my objection does still hold up and uh that was that i was going to guess that you were going to say he was going to refer to himself as in the past tense in the problem is that 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 line is fully in the present tense, right? I wonder how he could love me. I suppose it's possible that could is not. I mean, technically, grammatically, it's in the present tense. Um, but if you were talking about the past tense, you would expect him to say how he could have loved me or something like that, which would be clearly demarcating a state that I was in that I am no longer in, right? I wonder how he could have loved me, a sinner, condemned, unclean. That would clearly be saying, this is what I was, but I'm no longer that. Um, But when you say how, how, I wonder how he could love me, uh, it's, yeah, you're right, it's possible that this is in the past tense, but that's not, that's not how most people would read it, I think, and I think that's also what we try to evaluate songs on. All right, so then I have to say, if a song states that a Christian is still in a state of condemnation, I could not endorse such a song. And if this song is one of those songs, then I cannot endorse it, as much as I like other aspects of the song. (laughs) What a mess. What do you think, Tyler? (laughs) No, I I, I respect the principle. Um, I I think it it depends on how you interpret, I wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. Um. Because all right, so if a guy goes through a bad breakup, um, and it happened two weeks ago, 
and he comes to you and he says, how could she leave me? Well, he, he's obviously not talking about the present moment yeah. that he's in two weeks later. He's speaking kind of hypothetically yeah, about it's, something it's just, that was. Um, it's a different way of saying, how could she have left me? Yes, but that would people be don't say that. Right. So, okay. So is this just colloquial language and it just ends up being bad grammar in, or at least imprecise grammar, but he's really speaking in a colloquial way. I just can't imagine (laughs) that this, you know, I don't know. I say we kick it back to Iowa. (laughs) Okay. Someone from Iowa, tell us. And we do um, have some listeners in the Midwest. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to, uh, I guess I'll, I'll be a little bit more forgiving of um, the language here, and I'll say I, I give it a cold endorsement. So, you know me, yes. Uh, let me guess your rating. Um, no, I, I can't do that. That would be amazing. Um, Colin, what did, what did you give this song? Well, you have a one out of five chance of guessing what my rating is going to be, right? Yeah, but I was going to um, try and guess the quantifier, too. Okay, so the pro- oh, <laughs> so the problem with again, so with the rating, I before really ruminating on whether condemned is a problem, I had given it a higher rating, and <sighs> okay, <laughs> I mean you're trapped now. Can you can you give it a four, but also still? Um... Well, that's what I'm wondering because that's what no. I would have given it, right? So I would have given it a four out of five. Everybody sings, but when he sings this live, everybody sings in the version that I watched. He's just constantly not singing in the mic; like he just is singing like half verses, like and he just like kind of drops out. Okay, and I don't think it's just because like the compressor on his microphone isn't very good. I think he's just like letting people sing it. I don't know. And then there are these, there's just a lot of, there's a lot of kind of acapella-ish things. Nice. All right. So a non-endorsement, but a four out of five. Is that right? I guess. I don't know. That's okay. You've just unlocked a new dimension of (laughs) ratings. I'm a a shambles over this song. (laughs) You are a shambling husk of a man over this song. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. I'm going to give it three out of five breaks for applause because he uh, starts to play and then everyone starts clapping at a certain point in the song and then he backs off and all the music kind of dies down really quick and they wait for all the applause to settle down. Kind of like at a concert, uh, they wait for all the applause to settle down before going back into the song and playing. You say kind of like at a concert. It (laughs) was was definitely a concert. (laughs) That was a little tongue-in-cheek. I'll admit it. Yeah. Thank you again for tuning in to this week's episode of The Worship Review. We hope you'll leave us a positive review on your podcast listening services. Um, Follow us on Twitter. Write to us. Send us your feedback. Send us your money. Uh, send us your hopes and dreams, and uh, we hope to send catch us you. your tired and your weak and your <laughs> huddled masses. <poor. laughs> and we hope to catch you next week. Take care. Yearning to be free. You've been listening to the Worship Review. Please subscribe to the podcast, leave a comment, or email us at feedback at theworshipreview.com. We accept donations at anchor.fm/slash theworshipreview and patreon.com/slash theworshipreview. 
Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.